God's wrath is a very difficult thing. First, it's very difficult to talk about God's wrath because you see people today, they want a user-friendly God who puts them at ease. They don't want an angry God who makes them feel bad. And surely that is the reason why many people shy away from God's wrath, both embarrassed about it and fearful about how that message of God's wrath will be received in this day and age. So God's wrath is a very difficult thing. It's difficult to talk about it. But also, it seems to me that it should be difficult to talk about. You know, isn't it interesting? You, you go to Starbucks, for example, and you order yourself a, a cup of hot coffee, and you feel an intense pain holding a, a cup of hot coffee that you have to put a cardboard sleeve around it. So do we really think that we are going to survive a God whose holiness burns hotter and brighter than the sun? There can be no lighthearted conversation about God's wrath. We receive it And we repeat it with a trembling heart because it is what God reveals about himself and it is so foundational uh, to our future. And it is with that in mind we see the very first thing this passage shows us which is the Messiah's crimson garment. The Messiah's crimson garment. Now, in this passage, Isaiah sees an approaching figure from a distance. And this figure approaches from the direction of Edom's capital, Bozrah. Now, you might remember that Edom is Esau's people. And Esau, of course, was uh, Jacob's older twin brother. Uh, And Esau, we read, has such a disregard for the blessings that God promised to his grandfather Abraham. And you know how God came and made covenant with his grandfather Abraham. And then after that, he came to his father Isaac. But Esau, he has such disregard for God's promised blessings that he treated his birthright with the contempt. And so he traded the firstborn's birthright to inherit the covenant blessings for a bowl of red soup. And eventually, Esau's people became known as Edom, and that word Edom itself means red. And Esau's people, Edom, settled in what is today modern-day Jordan. And throughout history, there was a bad blood between Israel and Esau's people, Edom. So much so that Edom in time became the archetypal enemy of God's purpose and the enemy of God's people. 
And so in this passage, what we are seeing is Isaiah sees a figure approaching from the direction of Israel's foe and enemy. And there's something that he notices about this figure. This figure coming from Edom, which means red, is himself wearing red. And Isaiah asks, who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah? And Bozrah, again, is the capital city of Edom. And in addition, Isaiah notes that there is something very peculiar about his movement. There is intensity and there is vigor in his movement. Who is this? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. There is no hint or sign of weariness, weakness, but this figure approaches him in crimson garment with the fullness of his strength. And as Isaiah asks, who is this? This figure, he answers, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. And surely the background that helps us to understand this is in a few chapters ago, in chapter 61, verse 10, we saw how the Lord's Messiah, the Anointed One, He said in chapter 61, verse 10, My soul shall exalt in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That is, this is the Anointed One who in chapter 61, verse 1, we read, who brings good news to the poor, and who in chapter 62, verse 3, we read how he will not rest until he makes Zion and Jerusalem a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem. In other words, who is this who comes from Edom in the crimson garments from Bozrah, he who answers, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ that Isaiah sees, who comes from Edom, dressed in garment of crimson, with great power and glory. So that is the first thing that we see, the Messiah's crimson garment The second thing we see in this passage is the Messiah's blood-stained garment. Isaiah asks, Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? It used to be, as maybe some of you know this, when I first learned this, it turned me off a little bit. It used to be that the traditional winemaking required a person to step on the grace by foot in the wine press. I don't think people do that anymore, but that's how wine used to be made. And unsurprisingly, if a person goes into the wine press and and trods the grapes, steps the grapes, steps on the grapes, that process would leave his garments stained red. 
And Isaiah here is surprised to see the Messiah's garment stained crimson as if he had just come from a wine press. And indeed, he had. And so the Lord, the Messiah, speaks, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. The Messiah had crushed underfoot the enemy of God's purpose, and he had trampled underfoot the enemy of God's people until his robe was stained red with their blood. Now, of course, this is precisely the point at which some people will say, you know, this is exactly the reason why we don't read the Old Testament anymore. This is, you know, one of those embarrassing stain on God's character in the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is a vicious, angry, violent, and and wrathful God. We need the New Testament. What this is actually what the New Testament says in Revelation chapter 14, verses 19 and 20. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. That's roughly 180 miles. So look at this picture. This is talking about Jesus, actually. Jesus is trampling upon the nations in the winepress of God's wrath. So the blood of the people flow up to the height of a horse's bridle. I don't know, is it about this high? Flowing about 180 miles in a torrent, in a stream of blood. Let me tell you, this is more frightening than any horror movie you've ever seen. And then again in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, from his mouth, whose mouth? From Jesus' mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with the rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the all mighty. Do you see here that, that the Old Testament and the New Testament speak in one voice? The Old Testament and the New Testament speak one message. And both the Old and the New Testaments tell us that God's wrath is his just and a necessary response to sin. And unless we are saved from God's wrath, we will face eternal judgment 
and destruction. Let no one say that the God of the Old Testament is a wrathful, angry God, but the God of the New Testament is a gentle God. It is the same God. And we need to understand and remember the Lord Jesus, when he had risen from the dead in Matthew chapter 28, just as he was about to ascend into heaven and sit at God's right hand, this is what the Lord Jesus said. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that authority that has been given to him, all authority that has been given to him, surely includes the authority to save and to judge. And that authority to save and to judge, Jesus shares with no one. And that is why in Isaiah chapter 63, verse 5, we hear the Messiah say, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Jesus, he is the only one with the authority to save and to judge. No one can save us from God's holy wrath but Jesus. Salvation is his to give because Jesus, he suffered, he died, and he rose from the dead. Because salvation is what Jesus accomplished, it is his to give, and he alone has the authority to give that to people. And not only so, judgment is also his to execute because that is the authority that God gave him. And it is also his and his alone to execute because that is how he ensures Zion's eternal safety. And that brings us to the last point this morning. We saw the Messiah's crimson garment, and we saw his blood-stained garment, and finally we see the Messiah's splendid garment. And the question is simply this. In the last few chapters, we've been reading and reflecting upon God's promise to bring Zion and Jerusalem to eternal glory and peace. And so the question is, how can God's people have peace while her enemies surround her with malice? And so judgment upon the enemy of God's purpose and people is how Jesus secures his people's eternal glory. That is to say, Jesus judges to save, and he pours out his wrath so that no more threat may remain that harm his people. That is why in verse 4, this is what he says, For the day 
of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. You see how vengeance and redemption are joined together, and not just here, but throughout scriptures. At the time of Exodus, vengeance upon the hardened hearts of Egypt was also redemption of God's people. And of course, the cross of Jesus Christ. Vengeance upon the kingdom of Satan was the redemption of God's people. In the Bible, judgment and salvation are so closely related that we actually need to think of them as one single act. When God judges, he judges to save. When God pours out his wrath, he pours out his wrath so that there may no longer be any threats against his people. That is why here, vengeance and redemption are mentioned together and joined together. And that is why, that is why we should never be embarrassed about God's wrath. Yes, I know. I live in the same world as you do. I understand that this is the world where people, they're not interested in hearing about God of wrath. They're interested only in a God who makes them feel good. And it almost is so that we almost feel embarrassed to talk about the God of wrath. Don't be. God's wrath is how God accomplishes the eternal safety of his people. And if so, why? Why should we be silent? Because, yes, God's wrath is never something that we can ever bandy about jokingly, and God forbid. God's wrath is never something that we can talk gleefully about. You know, I think sometimes you see the types of preachers who specialize in fire and brimstone kind of message, and you almost sense kind of a gleefulness as they pronounce judgment upon the unbelievers. That is not okay. That is not right, and it can never be that. But we cannot be silent. We cannot be embarrassed about it, and we cannot be silent about it. Because the wrath of God, it is of a fundamental importance about what God reveals about himself and about our future. And we repeat, and we have to repeat, what God has revealed. That famous, well-known liberal theologian, by liberal I mean someone who did not believe that the scripture was God's word. In 1930, Richard Niebuhr, he made this remark, looking at what was happening around him, he made this remark, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministration of a Christ without a cross. And he saw it so clearly and he was exactly right. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. 
And that is no less true today than it was during the 1930s. But can I put it this way? A God without wrath is a God who does not care about evil. A God without wrath is a God who does not keep his promise to save to the uttermost and deliver his people from every foe, every enemy, and every danger. A God without wrath is a God who will not honor his son who suffered and died for the redemption of his people and then who does not care when the nations do not honor him acknowledge what he has done. A God without wrath is a God who will not honor his son for all that he has done and who will not give him that singular authority to save and to judge. And that is why a God without wrath, a God who does not care about evil, a God who does not keep his promise, a God who will not honor the Savior, that God, that God without wrath, is both grotesque and useless. That's what God without wrath is. And so you, you and I, we need to understand that God's wrath is not a sinful wrath, but it is a holy, just, and faithful wrath. And that is why we honor him. And so let me ask you this morning, are you saved from God's wrath? Are you saved from God's wrath? Do you live in the sinfulness of your heart, rebelling and rejecting God's claims upon your life? Do you dishonor all that Jesus has done, dismissing his claims that you are sinners reserved for wrath and judgment unless and until you cast your sins at his feet and receive the forgiveness that is full and complete, the Jesus who suffered and died to wash away our sins. Unless you have done that, and until you have done that, you are not saved from God's wrath. Are you saved from God's wrath? You know, isn't it interesting? This actually happened to me this morning. You know, we flinch with pain when our shower gets just a little too hot. Do you think that you can endure the fire that never dies? If you have not, Receive the forgiveness that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you today. Turn to Jesus today. He is mighty to save. He is powerful to save. And in Jesus, you will fear no wrath. Instead, his power, his power assures us of a salvation that is full and complete.
That is who Jesus is. Amen. Now let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we honor you. We receive, recognize, believe, and honor your claims upon our lives. For though we were lost in sin, in no way entitled or deserving of your grace, you have given yourself to death and you rose in righteousness that we, we hopeless, miserable sinners, may know the joy of forgiveness and fellowship and the hope of glory. Lord Jesus, we honor you for all that you have done, and we honor you for being our only Savior and the judge of all the earth. And so we pray that our esteem and love for you would continue to grow in our hearts. And may we rest assured knowing that you will one day come in the fullness of your power and to judge. And at that moment, on that great day, you will deliver us from all of our ills, sorrows, pain, and darkness. And we will wait that day with faith and hope in our hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.